podcast. I'm Rebecca Watterson, a researcher on this project and PhD researcher at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities initiative from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment, Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On today's podcast, I'm interviewing Lauren Young, a PhD researcher at Queen's University Belfast, investigating the history and lived experience of diabetes in 20th century Northern Ireland. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, Could you tell us a little more about what you are researching and why? Yes, so um, as as you said, my name's Lauren Young and I'm finally your PhD student at Queen's University Belfast. Um, So my thesis is um, an oral history project on the history and lived experience of type 1 diabetes here in Northern Ireland. Um, So I'm drawing on interviews from 28 participants, which from which I've gained some really interesting stories. And the change over time for diabetic patients has been completely astounding in terms of treatment, um, their relationship with their healthcare professionals, and also their access to the most recent treatments. But I'll not get into too much of that straight away. Um, In terms of sort of how I got to this point, I was first introduced to medical history when I was in my second year of undergraduate studies at Ulster University in Coleraine. Um, I was completely taken with medical history right from the get-go and just found every aspect of it completely fascinating. Um, I carried this through then to my undergraduate dissertation, which was actually a study of female patients within the Uma Asylum. So I think that patient approach has always been in the back of my mind um, from the very beginning. Uh, Moving on to my master's then, sort of medical history was once again um, at the forefront of this. And that was sort of my first step towards my work on the history of diabetes. So my master's was um, a study of diabetes in Ireland, but it took a more clinical perspective, sort of looking at the provision of care, the provision of insulin, and also um, mortality rates in the 20th century. So through my master's research, then I realized that the patient experience of type 1 diabetes uh, really needed to be given a place in medical historiography so that's where I'm at now hopefully my thesis is gonna is gonna help that (laughs) that's great so what was the patient experience of diabetes like before the discovery of insulin um so before the discovery of insulin in the early 1920s by Canadian physicians Frederick Banting and Charles Best being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes was essentially the same as being given a death sentence. Um, It sounds completely grim, but that was the brutal reality for a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, A person who was diagnosed with diabetes during this time was faced with a slow wasting disease that would eventually end in death by starvation or diabetic coma. So this was actually due to uncontrollable levels of glucose in the patient's blood and urine, which led to the production of harmful acids called ketones. Um, At this time, the prognosis of those diagnosed with diabetes was very dependent on their age. So generally those who were diagnosed under the age of 10 wouldn't actually live longer than three years. Um, And those who were diagnosed age 60 and more could live for up to um, six years. Um, So I mentioned 
often that diabetic patients would have died due to starvation or diabetic coma. Um, this was because the only method of treatment for patients before the discovery of insulin was by use of the starvation diet. So this was introduced by American physician Frederick Allen, and the process was fairly straightforward. Uh, the patient's diet was completely stripped of all carbohydrates, um, which is what causes a raise in blood sugar levels. Um, urine tests would have been carried out regularly until the patient's urine was completely free of glucose. And this, this was achieved by putting patients on a diet of meat soup, coffee and water, which doesn't really sound ideal at all. Um, so uh, continuing urine tests were carried out. And once the urine became sugar free, the patient's tolerance for carbohydrates would then be tested. So vegetables would have been sort of introduced gradually into the patient's diet until sugar started to appear in the urine again. Um, this though became a very vicious cycle. Um, as once sugar became present, the patient was then returned to their lovely meat soup diet. Um, and sticking to this diet obviously required very strict determination from patients. And even there were some physicians practicing at the time that claimed, you know, for patients quite often, uh, death was actually a better option um, than having to live on this diet for, for such a long time. Sounds horrendous. <laughs> for that. Um, so how has the patient experience of living with and being treated for diabetes changed over time? Oh, so where do, where do I start with this one? Um, in short, the patient experience of diabetes has been completely revolutionized over the past century. Uh, the discovery of insulin was life-changing and saved the lives of millions of people across the world. Um, for anyone who is interested in learning a bit more about the ins and outs of the discovery of insulin, there's a really good book by Michael Bliss called The Discovery of Insulin, which gives a really nice uh, comprehensive history of that. Uh, so I suppose the first real, you know, the discovery of insulin was the first real turning point for patients because now they had a way of fighting against high blood sugars and avoiding diabetic coma that previously they had very little control over. Um, however, there were problems that came along with insulin, and this is what's important whenever looking at the patient experience rather than the more progressive nature of what medical history tends to focus on. Um, insulin was very expensive when it was first introduced into the medical sphere, and not everyone had the ability to afford it. However, this was resolved quite quickly um, when pharmaceutical companies then started to come up with more ideas of how to make larger quantities of insulin for a much lower price. From the perspective of the patient, insulin injections were far from pleasant, uh, right up until the 1980s, which really wasn't that long ago. Um, insulin injections were administered using glass syringes and huge thick metal needles. So the patients that I've interviewed have talked about this method as if they can't believe that they actually had to do it. You know, they look back at it and they think, to think that the needles I used were just, they were horrendous. Um, so many of them talk about the pain that came alongside taking their injections and, you know, the mechanics of it, you know, making sure they weren't putting the needle in too far, but making sure that it was in far enough that insulin was being delivered straight into the bloodstream. The maintenance of this was huge as well. Um, these needles had to be sharpened regularly to allow for easier use. The glass syringes needed to be boiled to be sterilized before every single injection. Um, 
and a lot of patients, any doctors and nurses listening, cover your ears. A lot of patients admitted that actually they didn't sterilize their um, syringes as often as they should have done. Uh, this was because a lot of them said, oh, it was just too much hassle. It just took too long. I just wanted to take the injection and get it over with. Um, so it's interesting to hear that side of, that side of things as well. Um, when these needles became very blunt, it was extremely painful to inject. You can imagine trying to um, get a blunt needle through your skin. Obviously, that's going to be very, very painful. Um, one of the things I think that really shocked me about this method was that patients took one or maybe two insulin injections per day at a set dose without knowing what their blood sugar was. So we'll talk about this a little bit later as well. But nowadays, a diabetic patient has a blood sugar reading and your whole being revolves around that number. You know, what you do, what you eat, how much insulin you take, whether or not you can drive, whether or not you can go to sleep. So trying to imagine a life of not having that number, it just seems completely medieval, I think. But as I said before, this was only in the 1980s. So we're really only talking about like 40 years ago, not very long. Um, as the 20th century sort of progressed and in, in the last few years of the 20th century, new ideas and technologies emerged that would make life with diabetes a little bit easier. So we go from the glass syringe and metal needle technique to the introduction of insulin pens in the 1980s. So these were similar in size and function to EpiPens and used tiny, tiny razor sharp needles to inject the insulin through. So it was completely revolutionary and made life so much easier for patients. What's also important about these pens is there were co different combinations of insulin available, um, such as short acting and long acting insulins, which meant that multiple injections could be taken alongside, uh, multiple injections a day could be taken alongside meals. So this gave patients much more freedom and of course allowed for a move away from the horrendous violent syringe method that so many were used to for so long. Alongside the introduction of insulin pens, then we have the introduction of blood glucose meters. So this is that little glucose reading that I was talking about. Um, these new meters would give patients an exact reading of what their blood glucose was in around 30 seconds. So these meters came along with little testing strips that were inserted into the machine and blood was placed upon them from a tiny little cut made in the patient's finger. So again, we talk a lot about these advancements and how much, you know, they made life with diabetes easier. However, one of the big issues, again, with these meters was cost. Um, when they were first introduced, they were incredibly expensive, ranging from £100 up to £250. Um, and at this time, it was just beyond the reach of a lot of patients. Um, so they just had to stick with their urine glucose test, which was incredibly inaccurate at the time. Um, I have stories as well from patients who say that for their little testing strips, they couldn't actually afford to buy boxes of them. So what they used to do is they used to cut them in half or sometimes into three strips so that they would get three tests out of the one strip because that's all they could afford and that's all they were able really to budget for at that time. Again, it's absolutely crazy to think of this, you know, at this stage with everything that we have available now. Um, Fast forward then to sort of the end of the century and going into the 21st, 
Now we have continuous glucose monitors and insulin pumps. These continuous glucose monitors come in different forms, such as the Freestyle Libra, or as one of my interviews called it, this wee gizmo on my arm. Um, also, there's another one called the Dexcom system, and these are basically inserted onto a patient's arm or leg and will give a constant daily graph of their blood sugars throughout the whole day. All it takes is a quick look at an app on your phone, a quick scan. Um, it's really astounding to think of how far it's come in that regard. Um, insulin pumps then also work by delivering a continuous supply of insulin to the patient through a little cannula, which just sits under the skin. So there's no need for any more injections or needles. However, once again, this cost problem comes back around for patients. Um, particularly here in Northern Ireland, there's a very limited supply of insulin pumps um, and you have to fit a certain criteria in order to be given one. They are available to buy, but again, very much beyond the means of a lot of, you're talking maybe 150 to 200 pounds a month um, in order to have this insulin pump. So I think sort of, I've talked a lot there about the advancement of treatments, but I think what's important about the patient experience in terms of advancing treatments and new ideas and technologies is that it really increased their independence um, patients continue to become less reliant on their doctors and nurses because they now have the means to be in the control of their condition themselves. Um, one of the main sort of overarching themes in my thesis is this change in doctor-patient relationship. And I think the advancement of treatments really feeds into that. Um, we see basically the disappearance of a passive patient um, and the rise of an independent diabetic patient who is now equipped with the means to take complete responsibility for their condition and their overall health. So I think the treatment of diabetes is getting closer to allowing patients to live a life as normal as possible um, and as close to that of their lives pre-diagnosis. And I think, you know, the research being done now, we're watching history being made. And I think in a few years time, there'll maybe be another re research project um, documenting those changes as well. That's brilliant, Lauren. Thank you. I have I have a few questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm sorry if some of them are really rudimentary. It's just things I've written down as we've gone along. Yeah. Um, so you talked about um pre-1980s, the kind of the needles. Um mm -hmm. why were the needles so thick? Like was that just at like technology of the time or was it specific to the delivery of insulin? So I think it was just really at that time, it was just nobody could think of another way that insulin could be delivered other than through these huge thick needles. Um, you know, they did introduce um, just before the insulin pens, they introduced disposable needles, but they were still, you know, they weren't as thick as those metal needles, but um, they weren't as thin as the razor sharp needles that we use now. So it was very much just... Um, what a lot of interviews talk about, I interviewed a couple of diabetes specialist nurses who are retired and, you know, they look back on it and they say, you know, it's crazy to think of it now, but it was the best that we had at the time. And we just thought it was revolutionary at the time. So, yes, I think patients look back on those needles now because they know the potential of what is available. And they think it's all, you know, benefit of hindsight and also memory 
which is really important and one of the key things that I talk a lot about in my thesis as well you know you never you didn't know what was to come but yeah I think in terms of diabetes treatment those were the needles that that was all that was available at that at that time unfortunately. Brilliant um, and you mentioned that some of the patients said that they didn't sterilize that equipment as often as they maybe should have did that ever have an impact on their health? So basically what would have happened at that point is and it's the same now, if you use a needle more than once, you're at risk of developing lumps. So what can happen is if they didn't sterilize these needles, um, they would inject once and that would be fine. And then if they injected with the same needle again, you can get uh, basically fatty lumps just under the skin. And these can become quite raised uh, and quite irritated at injection sites. Now, that's not the most dangerous part of those lumps. The most dangerous part was that they were full of insulin. So first of all, that insulin wasn't being released into the bloodstream. But at that time that they were using these, diabetic patients didn't know that their blood sugars were rising during the day. So they were just going about their day like, yeah, I've taken my insulin, it's fine. When really, you know, they could have been sitting on the blood sugar in the 20s. Um, however, then those lumps at any point can release all of the insulin that they're holding and can cause a severe episode of hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar. So again, if that did happen, they wouldn't know because they wouldn't be able to test. They would feel it, definitely, um, and they would be aware of the symptoms, but they wouldn't know exactly how low they were and know how much sugar that they needed to counteract that. So I think that was the main, you know, that production of those fatty lumps underneath the skin and interviewees talk about that. They were very aware of it. Um, they were very aware of what could happen. Um, but yeah, a lot of them just just thought, no, this is, I'm just going to take my insulin and get on with it. And, you know, like, I I think I do, I do get it. I have, I'm a diabetic patient myself. And there are times when it's like, oh, I'll just use that same needle again. It'll be okay. And it's not, <laughs> it's not okay. <laughs> but yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, one last question about the kind of original injections that we're talking about. Did the patient always administer them themselves? So basically what happened was whenever a patient was diagnosed and they were taken into hospital, they would have been taught how to inject into an orange. So basically, you know, like the skin of, a, now we're thinking of a big orange here, the skin of an orange, you had to get just underneath that skin and into the actual segments so it was knowing that feeling because that was the closest thing that they would have had to your thigh or you know without actually having to do it so they would have learned how to do that to get just the right depth and then they would have had to have done it themselves now there was a lot of patients who were diagnosed when they were children um, and they talk about you know initially their parents would have injected them um, you know, we're talking about four and five-year-olds here, not going to be able to use those giant needles. Whereas now with the little insulin pens, you go into like sort of the pediatric diabetic, um, you know, department and there'll be little kids just running about with their pens and they're just, you know, going for it. But yeah, so most of them that were diagnosed as adults, yes, did it straight away. There was actually a couple of patients as well that said, when they were given an orange no just let me do it into my skin 
I'm not going to be injecting an orange, just let me do it now. Um, so there's a lot of independence, I think, as well, particularly amongst the male patients. <laughs> um, and yeah, for the children, you know, a lot of them then talk about they were maybe diagnosed when they were four or five, their parents did their injections. They might have done their injections right up until they were going to secondary school. And then it was like, okay, you're going to be going into school. You're going to have to take your injection by yourself. You need to learn how to do it. So it's interesting that sort of um, comparison just between, you know, the, the people that were diagnosed as children. That's great. And you mentioned the glucose testing strips and that mm-hmm. sometimes patients would have used the strip like multiple times. Um, yeah. Why weren't patients provided with those strips? as part and parcel so they were just too expensive at the time the nhs didn't have the funding to provide them um it's the same with the glucose meters um they just weren't they weren't available a lot of patients talk about whenever you know there was one appointment that they would have went to at the clinic and they saw a glucose meter and they were like what is that and you know the nurses in the clinics had them but they only had them for testing the patients whenever they were in for an appointment and it was the same with the testing strips um it just they were just too expensive to to give out to patients um and to buy in one of the nurses that I interviewed um she had a lot to do with getting free meters for patients and free testing strips and it's really amazing you know the way she went about it she talks about um it was a rep for the company that uh, made the meters now I can't remember I'm trying to remember what the name of the company was it'll come to me but they came in and they said we're going to give you 10 free meters a year like how do you decide which patients get those meters and which patients don't do you know what I mean but she challenged it and she said I want 50 free meters like this condition is lifelong and I need this to be free for patients and she got it um so I think the means were there um, but it was just, it just took a while for it to be really ruled out. Thank you. So why do you think an oral history approach was important for carrying out this research and for medical history more broadly? Um, so as I said earlier, I think my master's thesis really made me realise that a patient's perspective was needed in the historiography of diabetes. Um, it's one of the only conditions that the patient is solely responsible for. Um, if you as a patient, you know, don't keep control of your blood sugar, take insulin and look after yourself, it's entirely down to you if you experience complications. And that's just the brutal reality of it. So I think speaking with patients was, it was just to put it completely, you know, to be completely honest, it was the best way to gain an insight into their experiences. Um, there's a lot to learn, I think, from patients that isn't available in medical texts and clinical journals, particularly in terms of emotion and the impact of these advancements on patients. You know, as we've seen, the advancements revolutionise the treatment of diabetes, but what good is that if patients can't afford it, you know? Um, as well as that, I think, in Ireland in general, and this is something I learned during my undergraduate dissertation, um, patient records aren't really available here in the archives are very hard to come by um so I think and I was just really interested to talk to um, patients as well um in my thesis I sort of talk a lot about the idea of memory 
and how it might be impacted for a diabetic patient diagnosed in this latter half of the 20th century. Um, there have been some really interesting texts from this, such as, you know, gender, um, age and generational differences. Uh, my own insider perspective as a diabetic patient, which I can talk a little bit more about later as well. Um, and also how experiences with healthcare professionals have shaped the patient's memory of life with diabetes. Um, in terms of medical history, then I think, you know, what's great to see is oral history and medical history is coming together and there are works being done now on it, which I think is really exciting. Um, but I think, you know, medical history is still, it's, <laughs> I, I need to be careful with this. <laughs> I think it's still quite dominated by stories of the march of scientific progress and of medical men who have made discoveries that have and will save lives. And these histories are so important, of course they are. Um, but I just think the other side of that needs, there needs to be an equal balance. And I don't think that equal balance has been achieved yet. However, it, it is in progress. <laughs> There's more and more being done, which is great to see. And then I just think in terms of chronic disease as well, I think that my thesis will add an important element through diabetes to that growing literature as well. Hopefully. It's brilliant. So was there anything that came from the interviews with diabetic patients that surprised you or that you didn't expect to find out? A hundred percent. As I said earlier, just about my insider perspective um, as an interviewer. So basically what I mean by this is I am a diabetic patient as well so I can relate to interviewees easily and you know they feel very comfortable in speaking to me about things that they might not speak to someone who maybe they feel doesn't understand you know the ins and outs of it um and sort of about the more difficult aspects of life with diabetes um suppose in that regard I think I went into this research project three years ago thinking I had a pretty solid knowledge I was like yeah I have a fair idea of everything that went down and in hindsight I really hadn't clue there was so much that came up that just totally took me by surprise um I think the main thing was I was diagnosed in 2014 so I went into the hospital I was given four boxes of insulin pens a brand new meter all these test strips sharps boxes needles they were just handed to me and I was told to go, you know, I had no idea of the issues so many patients experienced in trying to afford these means of survival um, that I totally took for granted at that time. I think as well, you know, the idea of not being able to test your blood sugars and not having, you know, not being able to do that whenever you wanted to and whenever you needed to just really took me by surprise. I did not think that that was something that happened um you know as well you know having to inject with these I knew the glass and syringe method but one of my interviews after the pandemic so she had invited me to her home because she had a couple of objects that she kept such as the injection gun and I posted a picture of it on Twitter recently and got a huge response to it and I was like I was holding it and I just thought like what how how does this work it was just totally just completely baffling that that is the way that things were done and that's something that I didn't um, anticipate at all um 
and of course then the problems with cost um it just it, it shows as well i think that this is a real vicious cycle um currently you know there remains a diabetes treatment that i would love but they're so beyond the means of you know money and everything they're so expensive and i'm talking here about you know the insulin pumps and the artificial pancreas system which is currently actually being trialed and rolled out in England, which is really exciting. And I do think it'll be here soon, but um, at the minute it's very much out of reach for a lot of patients. But I think in the near future, it's gonna be available for everyone. Um, I think in general, sort of my research and my interviews has really made me appreciate how easy it is for me to get, get insulin and everything I need completely free of charge. And I think one of the other things to think about is even now, that's not the case everywhere um, in America. Like, you know, one of the leading causes of, you know, teenagers dying is because they can't afford their insulin. And it's just to think that that's still happening in, in places like that and in other places around the world is really scary. But when I look back on sort of the experiences had by interviews, I feel really lucky that I'm able to tell their story, you know, through my thesis and through sort of what I hope will be an important research project for uh, medical historians and anyone else that wants to, to read it going forward. That's brilliant Lauren, thank you so much. This was a really really interesting interview and I've learned so much. I'm glad. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you.